So we're looking at Exodus uh, chapter 6 to Exodus chapter 10. You can kind of thumb around as we're going through the passage. But about a week ago, a friend of mine was helping me with a project over in the Parsonage. And uh, we had to go to do a Home Depot run. And uh, as we were in the car, we passed by this uh, group of condos. It was kind of a condo complex. And uh, he told me this story about uh, this guy. And these condos kind of have this backyard. And then behind the condos are a bunch of houses. And one of the guys behind the condos, he had a pool. And at some point in the, in the past, he had built this pool. And he put half of the pool on his own property and half on the property that belonged to the condo owner. So, I don't know how long, uh, probably it was a number of years before anybody said anything, but finally the condo owner wanted to do something with that land, and he comes to the owner of the pool and said, I don't know if you realize this, but your pool is on my property, and you need to move it. And, you know, he was kind of nice about it. He said, well, uh, I'll even help you move it. We'll move it onto your property because I just need my land. But this pool owner is like, I'm not moving it. It's my pool. It's been there for a long time. I am not moving this pool. So it started to get ugly, and they went to court. And this pool owner basically is like, well, it's been here. I've had it here this, this time. I have some rights to it. And the judge is basically like, but it's not your property. You don't own it. You can't just put a pool on somebody else's property. But still, he refused to move the pool. So finally, the owner of the condo gets this uh, can of spray paint, goes to the pool, spray paints a line down the middle, marking his property, and then he takes a bulldozer and bulldozes it over. It didn't have to be that complicated, but it... It got ugly. And in a a similar way, Moses last week comes to Pharaoh and he speaks on behalf of God and he says, uh, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Listen to what God says there. He said, let my people go. They're my people. I own them. They're my possession. And I want you to let them go and serve me. Give to me what is rightfully mine. And in other words, what God is asking Pharaoh is he's saying, you need to recognize that I am the king of these people. They're under my jurisdiction. They're my ownership. But Pharaoh will have none of it. He says, I don't know this Lord of yours. I don't know this king. And why would I obey this one that I don't know? And he says, you are under my jurisdiction. I am your king. I am your master. I am your Lord. I tell you what to do. And I'm going to tell you, you are going to work harder. You're going to make bricks without straw. But God isn't going to have any of that. Just like the condo owner that bulldozed the swimming pool, God is going to show Pharaoh that not only does Israel belong to me, but you also belong to me. Not only am I the king of Israel, but I am also, whether you recognize it or not, the king of Egypt. And we see in this passage that God will not share his throne with anyone. He will not share his throne with anyone. And when we think about ancient Egypt, sometimes maybe we think about Egypt as being kind of a primitive society. But Egypt was a very advanced society. In the book of Exodus, it describes how uh, the pharaohs built storehouses and cities. They had thousands of people who were working for them, building them projects. The 
The pyramids that stand today and the Sphinx in Egypt, they're all great creations of the Egyptians. But God is going to show that He is the King. That He has power over Pharaoh. And there's going to be a battle between the arm of God, exemplified by Moses and the God of, and the arm of Pharaoh. And we'll see that as we go along, as God gives these signs and then plagues, we're going to see that Pharaoh's power starts to unravel. First, God gives uh, Moses a sign of the staff. He takes the staff and he throws it down and it becomes a serpent. The word for serpent doesn't necessarily mean snake. It could mean a crocodile, a dragon, uh, or a sea monster. We don't know for sure, but then we know that the Egyptian magicians, they come and they do the same thing. They take their staffs, throw them down, they become a serpent. And we've got to ask ourselves, well, how did they do this? It, it's possible that they did it because they just it was kind of a magic trick, an illusion. Or it's also possible that the enemy gave them some measure of power to fight against God's people. But regardless of that, the Moses staff that turns into a serpent comes and consumes the staffs of the magicians. Now, assuming that this is actually a snake, but we don't know that for sure, but if it is a snake, it would add added symbolism. We talked a few weeks ago about how there was a snake deity in Egypt called Wajet. And Wajet was exemplified in uh, the image of a serpent. And the pharaoh would wear a, a, a headdress, and on the headdress there would be a snake, which was called the Urias. And this snake was believed to be a symbol of the protection of Egypt, that it was a protector of Egypt. So assuming this is a serpent, it could be symbolizing that Moses' protector is stronger than the protector of Pharaoh. That God is strong, a stronger protector than the protector of Pharaoh, Wajah. But yet, even after that, Pharaoh will not listen. And so then God starts to bring plagues upon the earth. The first plague is the plague of blood. The Nile is turned to blood and as well as all the waters and every water that's in, in containers even. Now this also is symbolic that Pharaoh's power is unraveling. The Pharaoh was to function as kind of the head of the Egyptian religion. And the Pharaoh was to maintain order and justice. The, Hebrews, or the Egyptians had a word for that order and justice. They called it ma'at. And so the Pharaoh was to prevent the forces of chaos from taking over the land, and they were to maintain order. But this plague of blood was a sign that disorder was overtaking the land. One Sumerian myth speaks of blood coming on the land because of a failure to worship one of the gods. One ancient document called the Admonitions of Ipur described chaos overtaking the land this way. It says, Verily the heart is horrified, for affliction pervades the land. Blood is everywhere. Verily the river is blood, but one drinks from it. One may turn away from people, yet one will thirst for water. So the water turning to blood is indicating that Pharaoh's power is unraveling and chaos is starting to overtake the land. And then still, the Pharaoh will not listen. And so God brings other plagues. He brings the plague of the frogs, the gnats, the flies. A plague on the Egyptian livestock. The boils, hail, locusts, darkness. And then the last plague, which we'll discuss next week. And beginning with the fourth plague, we see that there's a differentiation between Israel and between Egypt. Egypt. 
After the fourth plague, the plagues only happened to the Egyptians, not to the Israelites. And the, the plague of the darkness, the second to last plague, is especially significant. The text indicates in chapter 10, verses 21 to 23, that the whole land of Egypt was completely dark for three days. And it was so dark that the people couldn't even see one another. They couldn't even get up from their beds because they couldn't see anything to do anything. And this was also significant for Pharaoh and the Egyptians and another sign that Pharaoh's power was unraveling. The ancient Egyptians believed that the regular cycles of the sun were kind of indicative of the gods' favor upon Egypt. That as the sun came up in the morning and uh, gave nourishment to the plants, it was a sign of the gods' favor. But now there's only darkness. And what's significant about this is that there were gods that were worshipped. The primary gods of Egypt were the sun gods. Sun gods Ray and then later Ammon Ray. And further, the pharaoh of Egypt was at one time called the son of Ray, the son of the sun god. And so the pharaoh who was supposed to protect order would be the one who ensures that the gods are happy. And he himself was even believed to be a god. And so he was to maintain this order and justice. And the fact that darkness is coming upon the land indicates that the sun god must be angry. Something must be amiss. Chaos is starting to take over the land. And so God brings these signs upon Egypt. But still, Pharaoh will not listen. It says in the text 19 times that, or actually 19 times that Pharaoh's heart or somebody's heart was hardened. One time it indicates that the Egyptians' hearts were hardened. But it says 18 times that Pharaoh's heart was hardened or that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Just a sampling of a few of these. Exodus 7, 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. 7, 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. But when Pharaoh saw that the, Exodus 9, 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Then one more time in Exodus 10, verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. So God shows all these signs and the plagues upon Egypt and still Pharaoh is like, I'm not letting people go. His heart is hardened. Now, there could be some significance to this fact that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. There were two primary words that were used in, this, in these texts to indicate that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The first word, chazak, means to strengthen. And the second, kabod, means heavy. And I think there's some background that might shed some light on the use of these words. And there's two pictures that are kind of created by this, what happens to Pharaoh in these passages. In the ancient world, the Egyptians had this phrase that was basically like being stout-hearted. And to be stout-hearted was to have determination or courage, to have tenacity. And this was looked on as being a very good thing, that if a person was hard-hearted, that they followed through. And the Pharaoh especially was someone who they wanted to be hard-hearted, to have strength, to t- tenacity, determination. And we see that as he refuses to relent, certainly he's hard-hearted. Certainly he's stout-hearted. Certainly he has determination. But is that determination really a good thing? I like to watch the show uh, Shark Tank, where 
people will bring inventions or uh, they'll have businesses and they'll come on and they'll show, share their ideas, try to get the sharks to invest in their ideas. And there's a lot of good ideas that come on the show, but there's some ideas that, you know, you, they share their idea and you're thinking to yourself, like, well, I already have something like that or would anybody actually use something like that? And then the sharks ask them, well, how much money have you made? And they're like, well, I've been working on this for 10 years and I made $1,000. But I, I'm really determined to do this. And uh, I've actually put a second mortgage on my house. Uh, I've gone through my retirement. And, uh, but, you know, the kids' education uh, fund is next. Because I'm so determined to do this. You know, and sometimes the sharks are like, well, you should just stop. It's just not a good idea. I mean, being determined to do something bad, bad idea isn't all that good. And what's happening here is that perhaps God is using this picture, using something that in Egyptian culture was considered to be a good thing, to be hard-hearted. And God is saying that he's giving Pharaoh what he wants. He's making him hard-hearted. He's strengthening his resolve. But in the end, that's going to heap judgment upon himself. But the second word that's used for hard-heartedness means heavy. And almost always when this second word heavy is used in the text, it's Pharaoh that is the one who's doing it. That Pharaoh makes his heart heavy. One time God does it, but the rest is Pharaoh does it or Pharaoh's heart is made heavy. According to an ancient document called the Book of the Dead, an Egyptian document, there was this Egyptian belief in the judgment in the afterlife. And in this judgment in the afterlife, there was a scale. And on one side of the scale, there was a feather, and the feather would represent justice or order or righteousness. It would, in fact, represent the, or the Egyptian word ma'at. And on the other hand, on the other side of the scale would be the person's heart. And if that person was wicked and their heart was heavy, then, that, the, heart, the, then the, the heart would go down and they would be guilty. But if they were righteous, if they upheld the ma'at, then the feather would go down and the heart would go up. And so what it looks like is happening here is that each time Pharaoh refuses to let the people go, he is heaping upon himself a greater heaviness and in turn a greater guilt and a greater judgment. Each sin brings greater judgment upon himself. So Pharaoh, we see at the beginning of this text that we looked at that Pharaoh says, I am the king. I do not know the Lord. I will not obey Him. I will not let you go. You are my people and I am the sovereign. And we see that God does a sign for him. Then He gives these plagues upon the earth. And after all this, He says, no, I'm not going to let the people go. And as He does this, He heaps guilt upon Himself as He shows Himself the one who cannot keep order, the one who allows chaos to reign, one who is not righteous and not just. And so we see that God will not share His throne with anyone. He will not share His throne with Pharaoh. But there's one that He will share His throne with. While Pharaoh was not worthy to share the throne, there is one who is worthy, and His name is Jesus. In Revelation 19, it describes Jesus as being a king. Revelation 19 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury, fury of, God, of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, the king who leads his people in justice and order and maintains this order, this ma'at, was not to be found in Pharaoh, but the one who is called faithful and true, who judges and makes war in justice and righteousness. Pharaoh was guarded by a snake on top of his head. Jesus was guarded by the Spirit of God who raised up Jesus from the dead. Pharaoh was helpless to stop God's judgment upon Egypt as the water turned to blood, bringing destruction in its wake. But Jesus took God's judgment upon himself as blood flowed down from his hands and his feet. Pharaoh gave everything that he had to keep God's people enslaved and in bondage. Jesus gave everything that he had to make his people free. There is one that is worthy, and his name is Jesus. He's worthy to share the throne with God. But here's the reality. He won't share the throne with you, and he won't share the throne with me. And some of us are here, and we've never submitted to Jesus as the King and the Lord of our lives. Maybe we've been to church. Maybe we know about him. Maybe he even is a part of our life. But he's not our King. He's not our Lord. Author Ray Ortland shares a story, shares an illustration of how sometimes we can invite Jesus to just be a part of our lives. He says, You and I are not integrated and unified whole persons. Our hearts are multi divided. It's like we have a boardroom in every heart. He says, Imagine a big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, and a whiteboard. A committee sits around the table in your heart. There is the social self, the private self the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and others. The committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. We tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy with so many responsibilities, but the truth is that we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, and unfree. And so he says the the one way that we could accept Jesus is that we can accept him onto the committee. That we can accept him into our life to be one more voice speaking to us. That just like our, you know, our money is in one place, our, our spiritual life is in one place, our sexual life is in one place, our career is in one place, God is one thing that we add to the mix to kind of provide input. But that's not what it really means to accept Jesus. He says, accepting Jesus means allowing Jesus to come in and firing the committee. Allowing Jesus to come in and, say, and saying to him, I believe that you are the king. I believe that you're Lord of my life. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. If we've never done that before, he's calling us to turn from our sins. To turn from listening to all those other voices and saying, I want to follow you as my king and my Lord. And if you're here, you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus in just a couple of minutes. Um, 
Patrick's going to share how you might enter into a relationship with Jesus. But some of us here, maybe we are believers, but there's areas of our lives where we've kind of drawn a line in the sand and said to God, you can go this far, but not any farther. And maybe there's areas of our life where we've start to, started to take the throne and take control. For some of us, maybe we've taken the throne in regards to how we talk, to our mouth. Maybe we're given to talking bad about people or being rude to other people, and we use our words to cut and tear people down. Some people, some of us, maybe we've taken the throne in regard to our mind. Maybe we watch pornography or dirty movies, or maybe we just don't watch bad things, but we spend all of our time consuming media and watching television and spending time on the internet. Some of us, maybe we've taken the throne in regards to our bodies, drinking too much or eating too much or taking drugs. Some of us have maybe taken the throne in regards to our money and we refuse to give money to other people or to the church. Some of us have taken the throne of our own future and we worry and we plot and putz around trying to control everything that happens in our lives. If you're a believer in Jesus, we have two options. The first is we can surrender to Jesus as king. A king who is good, a king who is just, a king who is worthy, who has our best interest in mind. And we can allow him to fix us, allow him to heal us by his Holy Spirit. Or if we continue in these things, just like the story at the beginning of the pool owner who said, no, I'm not going to move this off of your property. Sometimes God will have to draw a line and bulldoze parts of our lives to remove it from our lives. And when he does it, it's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. It's going to tear. It's going to rip. But we have the opportunity today to surrender to Jesus as king. And if we had a king who is so mighty and so worthy, who has such power, but also has with that power such love, why would we not want to submit to that king? Why would we not want to freely surrender every area of our lives to one who has our best interest in mind? To one who went to hell for us, who gave everything that he had so that we might be free, so that we might be, have hope. God will not share his throne with anyone except for Jesus. I'd like to close by reading Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42 says this, Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the, the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Before the, behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastland and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Keter inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. Let's pray together. God, we thank You that You are the great King, that there's no one who could stop You, and there's no one that could stop Your love. 
We thank you that though you are high and mighty in the heavens, that you chose to, came, to come down to the earth as a little baby, to live a sinless life, but to be persecuted and eventually killed on a cross. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that when we come to you, no matter what we've done, no matter what our past is, no matter what mistakes we've made, you, open, you welcome us with open arms. And though you are a king, you welcome us in as a father. And that when we come to you, we can find hope and we can find grace and we can find your peace. God, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you. God, I pray that today would be the day that they make you king of their lives. God, for those of us who are believers, God, there's many areas of our lives where we fall short. And God, many of us have allowed things to take your place, allowed areas of our life to come under our own control rather than under your control. And God, we pray that we would have the strength through your Holy Spirit today to turn from those things that are harming us and that we would surrender all those things to you. And we know that as we do that, we'll find your life and your peace. In Christ's name I pray, amen.